0: We've been going through the book of, uh, or excuse me, the chapter of uh, Psalms, Psalm 112, for the, the past group of weeks. And we've been talking about this idea of having unshakable character and what it looks like to become enthusiastic for God's ways in the midst of a world that really just wants its own way. And we've been working our way through this psalm a piece at a time, one verse at a time, just looking at what the Lord has for us here and seeing some of the principles that are mentioned in this portion of Scripture. And one of the things that we will see as we look at this portion of Scripture today, we're going to be in verse 6 in particular, but it's a portion of Scripture that reminds us that the Lord has not called us to be people who are easily swayed. So we're going to be talking about what it looks like to to basically not let yourself be easily swayed in the midst of of a fallen world. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 112. As I've done the previous weeks, I'm going to read the whole Psalm. But again, our focus today is just going to be on verse 6. And this is what it says in this portion of Scripture. It says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house. And his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. And then the verse we're highlighting today, verse 6, "...for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever." He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this portion of your word and for revealing things to us that we would not naturally understand. These are things that are supernaturally discerned. And Lord, we know that the desire that so many of us have to be men and women of character is a desire that you've placed in our hearts. And Lord, we know that there are lots of things in this world that test that. There are all sorts of experiences that we go through that can test that. But we also know, Lord, that you have a very consistent pattern of taking our experiences and the things that we go through in this world and using those moments of adversity and those trials and all of those things to ultimately produce character in our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be people who grow in holiness. We pray that we would be people who demonstrate Christ-empowered character. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at this portion of Scripture together, that you'd help us to, to understand what you were conveying by the power of your Holy Spirit in these words and that with your help that we would learn to apply these things to our lives. And we thank you for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So in 2016, there was a, uh, a younger man named Joshua who found himself in prison. And he had never been in major trouble before. He was actually finding it rather difficult to adjust to life inside the prison walls. Uh, he said that other prisoners treated him rather poorly, and in the midst of that, he also didn't have the resources that he needed to communicate with family and friends easily through letters. And he also mentioned that the unit that he was placed in didn't have a telephone. And when he was asked about the experience, this is what he said. He said, my faith was shaken from its foundation. I was truly alone with no one to talk to or help me. Then he said that in time, he was moved to a new cell. And yet, even in that new context, he still really didn't have access to a phone, but on one of the tables in that vicinity, he found a copy of the New Testament and he decided to actually read it. And this was the first time in over a decade that he had read something from the pages of the Bible. This wasn't something that at this season of his life had become part of a pattern for him or anything like that. It had been a while since he had read anything from Scripture. And so for the first time since he was a child, he said he felt that, that the, like the content of Scripture was coming to life as he was reading it. And so he kept reading it. Now, when he was a child, his grandmother used to read the scriptures to him regularly. She made a pattern of doing that, and I believe she did that for her other grandchildren as well. And he remembered how hard his heart started to grow after his grandmother passed away because she was the person that seemed to be investing most in his growth and most in his his spiritual development. And when she passed away, he said, his heart just grew so hard to God, and that kind of took him on a path where he lived with that hard heart for for quite a long season but now he was in a different context he had a lot of time to reflect on some of the things that had led him to where he was and he said that as he read god's word from prison his heart began to soften and his ears started to become attentive to what the lord had been trying to tell him all along and he said he started listening to the lord's counsel with the same kind of joy that he remembered having when he was a child and Of the things that he started reading in Scripture, some of the things that really started standing out to him were some of the stories of people all throughout Scripture. I guess somewhere along the way, he got a copy of the full Bible while he was there in prison, and he said, the Lord began using the stories of of the men who had unshakable faith that are demonstrated in Scripture to inspire him and to bolster his faith. He said, I saw how the prominent people of the Bible, like Moses and David, how they made mistakes how they even got angry with God, and yet they did not let their faith in him become weak. When they hit troubles or doubts, they laid them in God's hands. Then he said, I saw how Job, though he suffered immensely, never wavered. And I read that recently, and I thought it was interesting, especially in light of the scripture that we're looking at today, because with Joshua's testimony in mind, how would you describe your faith? You know, when you think about what this individual, what this man had to say about the experiences that he went through, how would you describe your faith? Would you say your faith is strong? Would you say your faith is unwavering? You know, when you think of your faith, do you feel like it, it resembles people like Moses or David or Job or some of the other people that that Joshua was highly inspired by as he actually started reading through scripture? Or do you feel like your faith maybe feels a little bit shaky right now? Like you've been going through a season that's either marked with trials or marked with adversity or just marked with uncertainty. And because of that, you feel like your faith is a little bit shakier than you wish it was. Psalm 112, verse 6, it has, a, has some interesting things to say, but one of the things that it really illustrates for us is what it looks like to be a person who is not easily shaken. It illustrates what it looks like when a person is not easily shaken in the midst of this world. I'll read it again. In that passage, it says, for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. Now, one of the things I like doing sometimes when I'm reading through scriptures is I like to compare some of the English translations side by side. And so a few of my favorites, I'll just kind of take and I'll I'll put them out before me, or I'll bring them up on a computer screen, and I'll just kind of look at them side by side and and see how a particular verse or a particular passage gets conveyed in a variety of English translations. And when you look at this from the ESV, which I just read, it tells us here that the righteous person will never be moved. Uh, One of the other translations, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, phrases it this way. It says, in, in that case, this person is referred to as someone who will never be shaken, So never be moved, never be shaken. Um, The New Living Translation translates it this way. It says that he will not be overcome by evil. So never moved, never shaken, not overcome by evil. When you take those together, I think the message is very clear. A person who has been made righteous by the Lord is not somebody who can be easily swayed by the patterns or the practices or the mindset of this fallen world. And so think about it this way. From time to time, over the course of your life, you've probably noticed that the culture tends to run towards certain things, and it runs towards certain things en masse. And many of those things are just, you know, you could put it in a category of either the latest form of decadence or the latest form of immorality, and you just watch the culture run right toward it like it's a magnet or like a moth to a, like a bright light bulb or something like that. And what the Scripture illustrates for us about someone who receives the the gift of the the Lord's righteousness is that the righteous person sees right through those things. The righteous person can see what the culture at large at times doesn't see because the righteous person has had his or her mind open to the heart of God. And you begin to start seeing things from that perspective. You begin to start seeing things with the, the mind of Christ or the eyes of Christ. And so, as we look at a portion of Scripture like this today, just a curiosity question I want to throw out there, and I want us to wrestle with this as we look at this, but do you desire to be that righteous person? Do you desire to be righteous like this describes? Or biblically speaking, what does it look like to be made righteous? How is true righteousness obtained? A lot of people use that term, and they throw that term around as if it's something just a, like a casual thing, but when you look at what Scripture teaches, it reveals to us that this is actually a very powerful work of God that He desires to do in the lives of those who trust Him. So what does it look like to be righteous? What does it look like to be made righteous? A lot of people have different ways that they phrase this. I, I'll show you a quote. Uh, from Martin Luther. Martin Luther said this in a very useful way as he was describing what it means to be made righteous in the eyes of God. But he describes it this way. He says, this is how it, This is how the transaction takes place. He says, Christ took our sins and the sins of the whole world as well as the Father's wrath on his shoulders, and he has drowned them both in himself so that we are thereby reconciled to God and become completely righteous. That's how Martin Luther describes righteousness becoming a pattern of a believer's life. So basically what he's saying is that our sin was placed upon Jesus. So just think about this from a personal standpoint, not just a theological standpoint. My sin, your sin, was placed upon Jesus. The holy wrath that we deserved was experienced by Jesus. And in its place... Jesus has given those who trust in him the gift of his righteousness so that we can enjoy an eternal relationship with God. That's the essence of how righteousness is obtained. We trust in Christ and we receive it as a gift because Christ took the wrath that, that we were destined for, he took that wrath upon himself, he took the condemnation that we deserved upon himself so that we could receive the gift of righteousness in its place. And true righteousness isn't something we can find within ourselves apart from Christ's intervention in our lives. True righteousness is not fostered through behavior change. Anyone who believes that they can make themselves righteous through their actions doesn't understand their need for Christ. And I've, I've seen that demonstrated in the lives of many well-intentioned people, where people think that they could go through life basically making themselves righteous through behavior change. And what Scripture says is that, no, what has to happen is heart change that ultimately Christ facilitates. As we trust in Him, He changes our heart. He gives us a new heart, even as Scripture describes it. And it's not our behavior change, it's not through the activities of our hands that righteousness is obtained. Righteousness is a gift, it's a transformation that Christ accomplishes in our lives. Righteousness, apart from Jesus, is self-righteousness. And self-righteousness leads to at least three different things. It leads to idolatry, it leads to legalism, and it leads to a lack of true repentance. So you think, like, the self-righteous person, what have they done? They basically idolize themselves because they go through life comparing themselves to other people instead of comparing themselves to Jesus. And this is what happens when you compare yourself to other people instead of comparing yourself to Jesus. You ignore the people that you feel like are doing better than you because you don't want to be diminished somehow in your own eyes. But when you find someone that's not doing as well as you, You replay that over and over in in your mind, and you say things like we see in in Luke's gospel where you have the Pharisee saying, oh, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you that I'm not like other men, these sinners, right? The self-righteous person looks at himself and thinks that he's somehow better than other people, and it becomes a form of self-idolatry. They basically start to look to themselves as if they are their own savior, and they forget their need for the righteousness of Christ that's received as a gift through faith in him. Righteous, Self-righteous people also tend to drift toward legalism, where they basically create a whole bunch of rules and a whole bunch of subsets of those rules that aren't even found in Scripture. And they say, all right, Scripture's a good start, but here's the real list of rules that I somehow need to live by. And uh, you also discover that a self-righteous person tends to lack true repentance. I actually get a kick out of this line. I don't know if you've ever heard this quote, but Leonard Ravenhill once said, the self-righteous never apologize. The self-righteous never apologize. Well, why would the self-righteous struggle to apologize? Because to apologize, what do you have to admit? That you don't get everything right. That you're not perfect. And I have to tell you, wherever you are in your walk with Christ, it is very useful to, to find yourself in a spot where you can apologize because if you can apologize, you recognize your need for Christ in your life. The person who can't apologize is the person that's trying to live by their own Self-righteous perfection, and that doesn't stack up to the righteousness that Christ desires to supply. And think about this, every time you apologize, every time you're willing to look at something and say, you know what, I could have done that better, or in some way I fell short of a standard, or in some way I offended you or hurt you, every time you're able to do that in a subtle way or maybe even a not so subtle way, you're you're acknowledging your need for Christ in your day-to-day life. Because you're saying, you know, I am not a perfect person. I need Christ to to fill in the gap. I need Christ to make me the person that he wants me to be. I can't do this in my own strength. And those who find their righteousness in Christ, when you come back to what it says in Psalm 112, verse 6, those who find their righteousness in Christ won't be moved. They won't be moved. They won't be shaken. They won't be overcome by evil because the righteousness of Christ is, is something that's become part of their life. And basically, on the contrary, what they will do is that they will rely on the strength of Christ to overcome evil in their lives, and they won't get talked into the schemes that the devil is regularly convincing this world to embrace. That's one of the things that Scripture tells us that the devil is very active in doing. He just loves to deceive people. even see this from the earliest chapters of Scripture. You know, in the Garden of Eden, you see the deception, how it played out there. You see deception all throughout the course of human history. And, and what happens? As, as, you know, just humanity as a whole, what do we do? We buy it all the time. Instead of learning from our mistakes, it's like we buy it all the time. And apart from the intervention of Christ, we would fall into that over and over and over again. The only reason you could see through the schemes of the devil is because Christ in his righteousness has opened your eyes to truth we would not notice it. We would fall prey to it over and over and over again, if not for the intervention of Christ. Followers of Christ are empowered by the Holy Spirit, Scripture reveals, to develop a mature understanding of how righteousness is obtained, so it's obtained through faith in Jesus, and also how righteousness is lived out in the midst of a fallen world. It's lived out with our reliance on Christ, not lived out with a reliance on ourselves. It's lived out with a reliance on, on Christ. I love what it tells us, by the way, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. Let me read this for us. There it says this, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. What was the apostle Paul getting at when he, when he wrote those things down as the Holy Spirit inspired him to pen that? What was he getting at? He's saying, listen, The goal for us is not that we would spend our lives immature, but that we would grow. You don't want to be like a child forever in the sense of, I mean, you know, in one area, Scripture says, be like a child in regard to faith. But in in regard to wisdom, in regard to the application of righteousness, we're not called to be like a child. We're called to grow mature. And you can remember back when you were a child how easy it was to be tricked or how easy it was to be duped or deceived. And the way Paul talks about it, he talks about it. I mean, think about this. You know, Scripture tells us that Paul spent plenty of time on the sea. He also experienced shipwreck. He also, you know, saw what it was like to be on, on rough water. And he said, you don't want to be like the type of person that's just tossed to and fro by the waves and just carried about by every wind of doctrine. Just whatever someone comes up with, you're like, oh, That sounds good. And you just go along with it. And he he talks about human cunning. He talks about craftiness and deceitful schemes. And by the way, he says all these things leading up to how he ends the book of of Ephesians by talking about spiritual warfare that's going on all around us. But he's saying, listen, don't don't be immature in your faith. Grow mature in in your understanding of what the Lord wants to do in your day to day walk. Live it out in a very active way. And I think observing the drift that's taking place in our culture at present, I think for those of us who have had our eyes opened up to the truth of the gospel and what the righteousness of Christ actually looks like, it's not a comfortable thing to observe cultural drift. That's not a comfortable thing. I don't find it very comfortable. I find it very troubling. And I I don't just find it troubling for me or for my wife. I find it troubling for my children. Because I look at that and I think, all right, Lord, please give them discernment to be able to see through this. And I think about future grandchildren someday. I'm like, Lord, please give them discernment to see through whatever happens during the course of their lifetime. It's very hard to watch a generation of people destroy themselves as they basically try to search for hope in all the wrong places. And that's what you will see as you observe our present-day culture. And by the way, that is not necessarily different from generations that have come prior to us, but I've only lived in this generation. So I've only had the opportunity to really in a first-person way, watch the drift that's taken place over the course of my life. And over the course of my life, I've watched a lot of things really drift in an unhealthy direction. But now think about this from the perspective of what Christ is doing in you and in me. If our faith and if our understanding is anchored in Christ and in the truth of His Word, we won't be tossed around by the debased thinking of the day. You're not going to just be easily deceived. You're not going to be easily tossed around. We're not going to be persuaded to veer off the path of Christ's righteousness, the path that He's placed us upon. We're not going to be easily deceived by the lies of the evil one. We'll be able to see through these things. Because most people on the face of this earth, and you could see this, you could see this as you're reading through history. I love to read through history. You could see the patterns that people have followed all throughout history, but you could see it again in present day. Most people on the face of the earth. They just follow whatever the prevailing notions of the day happen to be without giving deeper thought to what's taking place around them. Most people just rush to whatever everybody else is rushing toward. And you have, you know, in our day and age, the main messaging sources are things like media and politicians and entertainers and other people of influence. And so basically, people just sit around and wait for these sources to tell them what to think or how to live or what to pursue or what to value. So the media says something, and we all rush toward it, or politicians say something, and we all rush toward it, or entertainers say something, and we think, boy, that person's famous, they must, they must know a whole bunch, and we rush toward it, or people of influence, you know, in whatever sphere, and we just rush right toward it. And I have to confess, there have been plenty of seasons in my life, particularly in my youth, where I fell prey to that, for me, some of the biggest influences in my life during my youth, really came through the entertainment industry because of my love for music. And so I would look at some of my musical heroes, and I would idolize them. And if you saw my bedroom as a teenager, it was basically a shrine to all the people I idolized. And I didn't fashion it that way in my mind. I didn't really think of it that way in my mind at the time. But they had so much influence on the way I thought, on the way I interacted with other people on my perspective toward the future and I would look at that and basically whatever they said was gospel and I was so I was so grateful and I actually this was really cool. So many of you know that during that season of my life um that I was really into I get a kick out of admitting this sort of stuff because you guys didn't know me back then. But I was I was really into metal music like big time, right? So just picture just picture your pastor with like his ripped up jeans and his rock t-shirts. I always wore black t-shirts with bands on them, right? Always had to be a black t-shirt with a band. I did make an exception one time and I had a navy blue t-shirt with a band on it. But for the most part, it was black t-shirts with bands and ripped jeans and, um, you know, grew my hair pretty long. And, um, And those people were just like the main influences in my life. And I remember at, at that time, many of you know that I liked the band, and I still like them to this day, a band called Striper. They were uh, a band in that genre that created Christian music, and um, I actually just had the chance to see them in concert in May, believe it or not, and it, it was great. Dave Steininger was with, with me, so if you don't like the fact that I went, Dave dragged me there. I was like, Dave, like, why do you have to drag me to this? No, I dragged Dave to the concert, but anyway... But I actually had a conversation with the, the lead singer of that band, a man named Michael Sweet. I talked to him a little over a year ago, and I said, I have to thank you for something. During a season of my life where I was just so highly influenced by musicians, I said, I, someone had made me aware of your music, and I started listening to your music, and I said, before I ever developed a consistent pattern of reading the scriptures for myself, I would listen to your music, and your music was some of the foundational Christian influence On my life as you were singing messages based on what the scriptures teach. And so I said, I learned a lot of my early theology by listening to your band. And I said, so thank you for doing that and being a light in the midst of darkness because I was very confused at that season of my life. So kind of a rare thing that I actually had the opportunity to thank him directly, but I was really grateful that the Lord gave me that opportunity because when you look at what scripture tells us, it, it tells us to really be aware of what's influencing our thought. It tells us to be really, really careful about what we allow into our lives to influence our thinking, because what you believe is going to come out in your life. What you feed your mind is going to come out in your life somewhere. It's going to come out somewhere. I like what we're told in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. It says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And it's talking about spiritual maturity. It's talking about the application of the gospel. It's talking about looking at what Scripture actually says, committing that to our memory, and letting that come out in our lives. And when I think about things like this, and when I think about how easily we as a human race are influenced by people of prestige or people of power, I'm really grateful for leaders that the Lord has raised up throughout the course of history, that actually show us that there is a much different option than just throwing in our lot with a world that drifts wherever the wind takes it. Every now and then, the Lord raises up somebody that'll show you what it looks like to be a bit countercultural, to not just rush into whatever you know the media or the politicians or the entertainment industry or other influencers are trying to persuade you to think. Um, I don't have a slide for this, but I do want to read this for us. It's a quote from Albert Moeller, and some of you are probably familiar with his name, but he said this, related to leaders, related to leaders of of healthy influence. He says, when the leader walks into the room, a passion for truth had better enter with him. Authentic leadership does not emerge out of a vacuum. The leadership that matters most is convictional, deeply convictional. This quality of leadership springs from those most deeply held beliefs that shape who we are and establish our beliefs about everything else. He goes on to say convictions are not just beliefs. That is, they're not those beliefs that are merely held by us. Instead, convictions hold us in their grip. We would not know who we are but for these bedrock beliefs, these convictions. And without them, we would not know how to lead. Now, there are a variety of people, you know, I mentioned the story of of a young man named Joshua, who really looked to certain people in Scripture to be examples, and and he really took inspiration from them. And uh, I have to tell you, one of the inspirations, or one of the people in Scripture that I find very inspiring, a biblical leader that the Lord raised up that, that I think we could learn a lot from, was John the Baptist, and there's not a ton written about John the Baptist in Scripture, but there's certainly enough. And when Jesus was speaking about John the Baptist, when he was speaking about the kind of guy that he was, when he was making public statements about him, in Matthew's Gospel, he says this. He says, let me see if I have a slide for this. Yeah. Matthew eleven seven. he says, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And he says, what did you go, go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? It's like, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What, what was Jesus saying? He's making it clear that John wasn't a shaky reed. John was somebody who was willing to stand firm, no matter what the cost. Even in the midst of that culture that he was living in, he was willing to stand firm. And so the way Jesus described him, he said, listen, you went out to see him. You went out to hear what he preached. You went out to see what he was up to. What did you think you were going out there to see? You didn't go out there to see some weakling. You didn't go out there to see somebody with no spine, You didn't go out there to see somebody that just caved every time a cultural opinion or a criticism was directed in his direction. He's not a shaky read. Rather, he he stood firm no matter what the cost happened to be. And in fact, when you go just a few chapters uh, beyond Matthew chapter 11, when you get up to chapter 14, you actually find out that, that John the Baptist was bound and he was then thrown in prison because he decided to confront the political leadership of the time. He confronted Herod and he confronted Herod about something very specific. Tell me if this wouldn't be an awkward thing to confront anybody about, but in this particular case, it was rather awkward. He confronted Herod about the fact that Herod was sleeping with his brother Philip's wife. It's like, you're sleeping with your brother's wife, and you shouldn't do that. It's like, wait a second, John, do you know who you you are and who I am? John's like, yes, and I'm telling you the truth. You shouldn't be doing that. And yet Herod was continuing to to live in that context with Herodias. And then soon after, what happens is Herodias takes great offense to this, and because of his boldness in this matter, John the Baptist was beheaded. And you look at this, and you say, all right, he took a stand in the midst of his generation, and it cost him his head. But then you also think about the fact that here we are, all these generations later, remembering his name and holding him up as an example of faith, and taking inspiration from the example that he gave us. A friend of mine once said this to me, and you could tell me maybe later what you think about a quote like this, but he made this statement. He said, You never really die if people are still talking about you after you go. That's what his comment to me was. You never really die people are still talking about you after you go. Now, I recognize there are obvious theological limitations to that statement, and the friend that shared this with me wasn't someone that knows the Lord, But that was his perspective, and so I thought it was an interesting statement. But I do find that concept also interesting to think about and to contemplate in light of what we're told in Psalm 112, verse 6, because in addition to the fact that the righteous person isn't moved or isn't shaken by unrighteousness, that Scripture also tells us that he will be remembered forever. That that righteous, unmovable, unshakable person who doesn't give in to evil will be remembered forever. And I often think about the ways in which the Lord allows us to impact others. And I think it's fascinating to consider that the influence of a godly life is something that can extend far beyond the years of one's natural life. Your influence can reverberate well far into the future after your time on earth is complete. The testimony of what Jesus has done for you, in you, and through you can actually be passed down to the generations that come after you, including people that you never meet. It could be passed down to your own lineage. It could also be passed down like in the case of John the Baptist. John the Baptist didn't have children. He didn't have grandchildren, nothing like that. But his testimony was being passed down to generations of believers that came after him and are still part of his spiritual family. When we think about his example, we think about the things that that he endured and the things that he said, and I think the testimony of what Christ has done on our behalf and the ways in which he has transformed us is a, is a testimony that ultimately reverberates into eternity. It's a story that can be told over and over and over again. I think it's something that we'll be praising him for over the course of many thousands of years. And I want to give you just a thought. I want to plant a seed of a thought in your mind related to this. I think it's also something that we... First of all, we might want to consider sharing now, right? So share your testimony now of what Christ has done in your life, the things that he's done in your life and through your life. Share it to your children, share it to your grandchildren, share it to anyone else that the Lord brings into your life. But can I also encourage you to consider taking time to write it down or maybe even recording it? Um, Several years ago, a friend of mine, he was... Uh, advanced in years, he had spent most of his adult life serving in pastoral ministry. I don't know if anyone of you'd know his name. His name was Bob Finley. Uh, but Bob decided, you know, he's just kind of looking back over the course of his life and he just decided, you know what, I need to write down the testimony of how I came to faith in Christ. And so he wrote it down. and uh, And he also wanted to write down the testimony of what the Lord did in his life, over the course of his adult life, and in the life of his family members after he came to faith in Jesus. And so he wrote it down. And then he printed it up. I remember he printed it up on green paper, and he, it was like a trifold thing that he shared with a whole bunch of people, and we used to share it with other people. It was a really interesting story, really interesting testimony to read. And it was also interesting because soon after writing it all down, he passed away. And I remember being particularly grateful to have a written record in his own words of what the Lord had done in his life that he had taken the time to write down. I really felt like the Lord had prompted him to do that, knowing that his days were short. So think about your own life for just a second here. You know, In light of what Psalm 112 tells us, in light of what these complementary scriptures tell us, in light of even the example of John the Baptist, as you think about how the Lord used him, How can we leave a legacy that testifies to the fact that during our generation, we were not easily swayed or deceived by the craftiness of the evil one? I think that answer is given to us. I want to finish up today with something very practical. I want to give you three things that I think are very practical and very helpful with this, because I think the answer to that question was given to us by the Apostle Peter when he wrote his first epistle to believers. And these believers were under great persecution during their day. They were being scattered. They were being chased from their homes. Look at the things that he says in this particular verse. In 1 Peter 1.13, he says this. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Think about that. Break that down into its parts because he says three different things here, three complementary things. And I think the first thing he's telling us here, you know, if you want to be somebody that's, first of all, in the midst of this generation, unshakable, not easily swayed, and someone that wants to have a testimony of this for generations to come, I think the first thing we need to do is prepare our minds for action, right? He says it in that verse. Our faith in Christ isn't something merely to be uh, just or contemplated, right? It's not just meant to be contemplated. It's meant to be lived out. Our faith in Christ is meant to be lived out. We need to get ready to act upon what the Lord teaches us. We need to become men and women who put our our spirit-led convictions into action. The world doesn't need more theorists. The world doesn't need more critics. It needs action-takers whose hearts are fully devoted to Christ. And so Peter says, listen, prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for action. Something else he tells us here is the fact that we're also called to be sober-minded. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be sober-minded as he's describing it here? Well, a sober-minded person is a man or a woman who is filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit means that we're controlled by the Holy Spirit, influenced by the Holy Spirit. A sober-minded person demonstrates self-control. A sober-minded person demonstrates discipline. A sober-minded person stays alert to the things that are near to the heart of God and doesn't allow themselves to come under the influence of anything that can alter their thinking in an ungodly way. And so Peter says, be sober-minded. Being sober-minded. It's like an ongoing thing that we're called to put into practice. And then finally, Peter challenges us to set our hopes on Jesus Christ. Jesus supplies the grace that we need. Jesus is the one who has promised to restore, or to return and restore creation. Jesus will one day reign upon this earth with perfect righteousness. And those who follow him now are going to be the ones who reign with him then. That's what scripture reveals to us. The day is coming when we will experience the full effects of our salvation. And all creation is going to be restored by the one who made it perfect in the beginning. So knowing this to be true, just with all of this in mind, thinking about all these things that the scriptures we've looked at together today help make plain for our minds. Knowing this to be true, don't let yourself become easily swayed by your old nature. And don't let yourself become easily swayed by what the culture may be gravitating toward at any given moment. With the power Christ supplies, stand firm in the convictions that are so clearly taught in Scripture, the things that are illuminated to our hearts and illuminated to our minds by the Holy Spirit. become. We have the privilege to become an unshakable force in the midst of an anchorless generation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to just think about these things that you've revealed to us in your word. Lord, you tell us in Psalm 112 that, that the righteous person is never moved. This is a person that's not easily shaken. This is a person who is not overcome by evil. And that is a very countercultural posture. Because we know that the the pattern in this world is to basically just rush headfirst toward whatever seems appealing or whatever would gratify our old nature or whatever the culture at any given moment is holding up as something to esteem. And Lord, so many people we know just basically just wait for the primary sources of information in this world to just tell them what to believe instead of looking to the counsel of your word and listening to the guidance of your spirit. But Lord, we pray that we would be very, very different from that. We know, Lord, that we've all fallen prey in one way or another to the influence of Satan, to the influence of this world. And there have been times that we could point to where we rushed right toward what the rest of the culture was rushing toward. And there's probably areas of our lives, Lord, that we need you to illuminate to us that that really kind of fall into that category even still. But Lord, we pray that as we look at a portion of Scripture like we looked at today, from Psalm 112, as we just really think about the meaning of verse 6, and as we think about things that you revealed to us in First Peter 1 and Ephesians 4 and elsewhere, we pray that you'd make us men and women who stand firm in the midst of a world that doesn't understand conviction. We pray that we would be people who listen to your voice, who listen to your counsel, and who put into practice the things that you reveal to us in your word. Lord, we pray that we would be people of action, not just people of observation. We we, we pray that we wouldn't be people who hear all of this and really never get around to acting upon it. Lord, by your grace, we pray that these would be things that you would just stir up within us and that we would learn what it means to take a stand and be willing to pay a price to take a stand. Lord, I'm just so grateful for the example of people like John the Baptist, somebody who was willing to take a stand in the midst of his generation. And the stand he took was not popular, but it was honest, and it was true, and it was righteous. And so, Lord, we pray that if you call us to take a stand, and I think you are calling us to take a stand that is unpopular in many categories, in many regards. And so, Lord, I pray that when we take that stand, whether we be adults or whether we be young people, or I just think about all the young people that are part of our church family that so often operate in a context that tries to steer them in a direction that's so unhealthy and unwise, I pray, Lord, that you'd guard their minds and guard their hearts and help them to see right through the schemes of the evil one. I pray that they would walk with you. I pray that we as adults would walk with you as well and that we would stand firm in the midst of a culture that doesn't celebrate the things that you implore us in your word to to embrace. But Lord, even again, as we think of people like John the Baptist, who is willing to take even a final stand over these things, we pray that that would be the kind of faith that we would have, knowing that whatever happens to us ultimately is going to be for your glory and for our good. And Lord, we pray that when times of testing come, that we would simply look at these things and say, this is an opportunity for my faith to be demonstrated, to be genuine. So, Lord, thank you so much for the challenge that you give to us from your word. Thank you for the examples that you've given to us of what it actually looks like to live out our faith in the midst of this world. And we know, Lord, that if if we're not living out that faith, this world is not going to have the testimony that it needs of what it looks like to actually be a transformed person, someone who has a new life through your son, Jesus Christ. We need to live it out so that this world can see, so that those conversations can happen, so that the testimony can be given, and that others may come to know the hope that you've blessed us with. We're just so grateful, Lord, that you're allowing us to see beyond our circumstances into the glorious future that you have in store for all who trust in your Son, for all who have been made righteous through the righteousness of Christ, not through our own righteousness. So again, Lord, thank you so much for these reminders today. We pray that we would be encouraged by them as we seek to live out our week and ultimately live out our life. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to today's episode. For more resources to help you in your walk with Christ, please visit DesireJesus.com. Finding uplifting news in today's headlines is often like searching for a needle in a haystack. At the Story Behind podcast, we believe in the power of finding heartwarming tales and are happy to share empowering stories with you every week. Hear about how Steve Harvey surprised a dying man on Family Feud with $25,000. Get inspired by the note a waitress received from a patron dining alone. And even hear about how one VIP passenger made a hardworking pilot get emotional before his flight. To start listening to the Story Behind podcast... Visit lifeaudio.com or search Story Behind on your favorite podcast platform.